trigger warning, trigger warning. This is a reminder, you have got a trigger. Do you know what your trigger is? It's that soft spot, that bruise that makes you see red when it gets pushed. And I don't know what your trigger is. Only you know that. This podcast strives to have thoughtful adult conversation about human issues. But I'm not a professional, and I would describe lots of the topics here as things that would trigger someone. So if you find yourself being triggered by any of the issues that we talk about here, I'm asking you now to please take that opportunity to simply find something else to listen to. Also, this is not professional advice, ever, (laughs) even when we talk to professionals. This is only casual conversation that is meant to promote for mindfulness and examine our own egos. Thanks. Yeah, I'm just, I was looking up the definition of delusional and just came across different things. And just kind of my interpretation of it is thinking you've got it when you don't, basically. And like, I've been delusional many a time. Um, But yeah, just thinking I had a handle on things when I didn't. And it's almost like a pride and ego thing, even though I don't think I'm the most egotistical person. I'm like, ah, I've got it. It'll be fine. And then it's not like, oh, I didn't have this at all. Here's the thing, I like to feel like I'm in control, I think is my Achilles heel. I like to feel like I'm the one taking care of things and being there for other people when they need help. And I hate feeling like I need help from other people. I hate being vulnerable. I like when I can offer intimacy or I can offer a safe space for people to be intimate with me, but I have a hard time being intimate with other people. And I think that is my egotism, is that I like to think I'm in control. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me today, Earth Monster. I'm your host, Matt LeBlanc, and I bite my fingernails when I'm stressed. (laughs) Always have. I mean, I've gone through periods where I can stop, but when I really start worrying about something, I can mess up my cuticles. Grown man with band-aids all over my fingers because I let my imagination get away from me. Yikes. This is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. A big thanks to Eric for coming on the show today. I love that he prompted himself by looking up a definition for delusion. Word power was a big thing in my house growing up, and I have been finding so much nuance from people's stories by looking up the definitions of the words that they choose to describe their experiences. So let's all take a quick minute to catch up with Eric. Delusion, an idiosyncratic belief or impression that is firmly maintained despite being contradicted by what is generally accepted as reality or rational argument. And, just for a full picture, necessary, adjective, required to be done, achieved or present, needed, essential, and, necessary as a noun, the basic requirements of life, such as food and warmth. And these are the types of fantasies that we're talking about here the necessary fantasies, that in many cases are a basic requirement of life. Anyway, the definition is just a jumping off point, but it seems to have helped Eric boil his down very fast. He needs to feel like he's in control. 
He hates being vulnerable. He likes to create that safe space for other people to be able to be intimate with him, but he has a hard time being intimate with other people. Can you think of your earliest experience when you felt like you wanted to be there to provide a safe space for someone? Like the first time that you felt that dynamic? Well, in you posing that prompt, like me wanting to provide a safe space when I, I just physically couldn't or I thought I could. Um, I've been thinking about this for a while. So when I was nine in the middle of fourth grade, my mom uh, pulled me and my little brother out of school. She said, hey, we're going on vacation to Ghana, uh, West Africa. That's where my family's from. Uh, but my brother and I were born and raised in Maryland. So we're in Ghana, me, my little brother, my mom, we're there for like a couple weeks together. And then my mom packs her suitcase and is like, all right, bye guys, you guys live here now. And she flew back to Maryland and me and my little brother were just in Ghana, you know, bewildered. And so my little brother's four at the time. So he's like, wait, what, where's mom? Wah, like, you know, crying a lot. And I remember myself not crying a lot because I felt like I had to be there and be supportive for my little brother because it was me and him and you know strangers to us that we were living with but i again i didn't remember crying myself much and that probably had a massive effect on <laughs> how i see vulnerability and relying on other people in my you know adulthood and he came out the gate swinging <laughs> and truthfully this wasn't even the story that eric was planning to tell today I was not expecting to get such a precise and provocative answer from, um, <laughs> can you think of your earliest time? I've been in therapy, so I've been doing a lot of digging and, and introspective exploring with myself the last couple of years. That's great, man. So this was the before picture. Eric, in fourth grade, average kid, loved superheroes, living in Maryland. It was my first year in public school. From kindergarten to third grade, I was in a Catholic school in the next county over. My mom wanted me to be in Catholic school. And fourth grade was the first year that my older sister couldn't bring me home from school anymore. She was nine years older, so she had just graduated high school at the end of my third grade year. So fourth grade, I went to the local public school close to my house and became a latchkey kid, taking the bus to and from school because my sister was away at college. So at nine, he would spend a few hours after school at home without his parents around. But in school, he was social. I'm in class, I'm talking to people, getting to know people, and I got a note home from the teacher saying, hey, Eric's being disruptive. And she's like, hey, give this to your mom. And so I guess my mom saw that and was like, oh, we gotta get Eric the fuck out of Dodge because <laughs> he's falling in with the wrong crowd or something. I don't know, she, she got freaked out. Hold on. So he got a note home saying that he was being disruptive in class. And his mom took that as an opportunity to send him to live in West Africa? Delusion! I honestly think other things might have been going on. Like, she just might have been stressed as a parent or there might have been money troubles. I don't know. My mom's very, like, close to the chest about that information. But Oh, so you still don't have a lot of clarity on why this happened? Absolutely not. In fact, Eric's dad was around, too. His parents were together. I exclude him from the story a lot because he didn't fly with us to Ghana. So... I guess forever in my eyes, my mom did that, <laughs> but my dad probably signed off. Eric's dad would drive him to school every morning in Maryland, and they would sit quietly in the car listening to AM radio. So my dad driving me to the private Catholic school every morning, kindergarten to third grade, there wasn't time for me to eat breakfast at home all the time. So most mornings I'd have McDonald's for breakfast. So I was a really husky kid. He was a husky kid, the middle kid, 
With his sister in college and his little brother only four years old at the time, he loved superheroes, and he had this 1,000-watt smile across his face that lived from one ear to the other. I think I'm a good mix of both of them because my mom does like to laugh and laugh big. And my dad, it can be kind of quiet, but then like around familiar people and stuff, he, he, he also likes to laugh and have a good time. So, you know, sometimes I, I sit and I observe and I, you know, take everything in, but then once I get used to a place or you know, meet new people or whatever and, and feel comfortable, then I, you know, show them the pearly whites up and yeah. down the room. Little did Eric know, a lot of his big smiling and laughing was about to stop. Before he knew it, he was landing in Ghana, West Africa, for vacation with his mom and his four-year-old brother. Ghana is a hot country. It's a sub-Saharan climate. It's, it's compared a lot to Texas in the summer, for context. It wasn't Maryland, you know, like it was a completely different world. Ghana right. is either wet or dry. So that was like the end of four seasons as I knew it. And I remember it, clear as day. Their mom took them to their Uncle Joe's house. Uncle Joe wasn't really their uncle. He was Eric's dad's friend from college. It just felt really rural. I mean, my uncle's house was in Accra, which is the capital city, but it still was like suburban rural, it felt like. That's the best way I can describe it. Palm trees and like banana trees, coconut trees, pretty tropical trees just growing naturally. There's rolling hills, but my Uncle Joe that I lived with was in a pretty nice house like you know i had a gate and veranda and a yard and he had coconut trees in the backyard and stuff so that was a pretty nice chill area place to be at it was him and his wife his kids you know just people living at the house and all new people but they welcomed us with you know open arms and I, we had been to ghana like a time or two before so they weren't complete strangers but it was like you know we've been here for like a month at a time or so a couple times before and he was only nine years old. Lots of nine-year-olds still believe in Santa Claus. In fact, some of us still believed in Santa when we were 11. Guilty. But just to remind us that Eric was still very young, in a time when a big part of our minds still live in a fantasy. They had visited Ghana before, but at nine, most things are still brand new to a certain extent. He remembers exploring the trees in the yard with his cousins, seeing new things he had never seen before. It was exciting. Whoa, what's that? And like, this is an avocado. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. I haven't moved to LA yet. <laughs> Ghana's a beautiful, peaceful country, huge with tourism. People love going on vacation to Ghana. A lot of black Americans have like moved, uprooted from the United States and moved and started lives in Ghana. Like it's, it's dope. So for a couple weeks, Eric and his brother and their mom stayed with Uncle Joe's family eating organic food that they made at home, and playing outside in the heat with their older cousins. It was a great vacation, until one day, without warning, mom started packing. I guess this is what I'm wondering. Is it a sobering reality that sets in, or do you come up with a fantasy about like, this isn't really happening, <laughs> I don't really live in Ghana, this is gonna be over soon. Yeah, I think it was a sobering reality to see my mom leave and with her suitcase and our shit still be bagged up, like in Ghana. Because my mom's not a jokester. <laughs> it wasn't like, ah, I gotcha, <laughs> you know, like. Right. So when we figured out that that's what happened, my little brother was four at the time, I was nine, and he was super distraught. He was like, where's mommy? Where are we? I don't know these people. For me too, I felt that way internally, but I, I felt like I had to keep a strong face. And I was like, I don't know, but I got you. And like, I don't remember 
crying and boohooing because I was like, yo, I got to hold together for little brother because I didn't have any answers. I just was like, don't cry because <laughs> he's crying. You know, he needs you to be strong and supportive. But wow, yeah, that was a time where I could have used some comforting, but I felt like, hey, I got to I got to step up. Little brother is like wailing. So he kept a straight face. He tried to provide support, even though he must have felt completely out of control. And this began a giant delusion that was being pushed on Eric and his brother. The delusion was Ghana. You live in Ghana. You're Ghanaians. This is your family. This is your house. Forget about Maryland. Maryland is a faraway dream. Ghana is your reality. This is your life now. It was a complete uprooting and upheaval of my life. Suddenly, Uncle Joe's whole house looked different. The family felt different. The heat of the countryside sat heavier on top of him. It wasn't vacation. His mom was gone. His brother was a wreck. Eric told himself one story, super simple and very applicable. Don't cry. And he used it to bury that feeling. One getting left there like that, because it's not like we were let know in advance, like, hey, you guys are going to be living in Ghana. It was explicitly described as, hey, we're going on vacation. <laughs> and then I was in a school uniform going to school in Ghana uh, a couple weeks after that. So that was that was wild. What was your least favorite part of living in Ghana when you got there? Mosquitoes. <laughs> Definitely mosquitoes. Still my least favorite part of Ghana is mosquitoes. Different than here? Oh man, they're relentless. It's like they've got like drill bits <laughs> in their fucking noses. They, they get through walls, mosquito nets, doors. Eric and his brother were sharing a bedroom with their male cousins that were a little bit older. My two dude cousins had beds on each end of the room and then me and my little brother shared a bed in the middle. And in our windows, we had mosquito nets. But for whatever reason, the mosquito nets fell out or like someone was like, yo, these mosquito nets are dirty. We got to take them out and, and wash them and clean them. And and it's hot. So we have to sleep with the windows open. And it's not like Maryland didn't have mosquitoes, but like this was just like this is where they make mosquitoes. So those mosquitoes ate us up that night. It was it was it was so vivid in my memory. Eric huddled next to his brother in bed. They were nine and four. And even though it was hot, even though it was dark and they were in a strange place that they weren't used to yet, even though they were sweating, they pulled the blanket tight around themselves, up tight around their necks, to keep out the mosquitoes. His brother sniffled and whined and cried out when he got bit, and Eric tried to comfort him. So I was like, hey, little brother, like, these mosquitoes suck. They're eating me up, too. Just try to fall asleep. We'll be okay. Just wrap up in the blankets as much as you can, and hopefully they don't get in. But it didn't help. They still got all bitten up. They still sweat like they were at the beach. They still couldn't sleep. His brother cried, and Eric didn't. He shut his eyes, and he fought to keep them shut. He pushed his mind out of the sweaty, awful, crowded bedroom in Ghana, and he imagined his bedroom back in Maryland, his clean, cozy, single bed that he had had all to himself. Hoping mom's coming back soon, hoping to go back to Maryland soon, like wishing for winter. And I hate the cold, but I'm like, mosquitoes can't thrive in the cold. It'd be nice to be in Maryland right now. Um, wishing for her to come back, but then just like, in this moment, let me just try to fall asleep because I can't, can't deal. Yeah. Was everybody awake? Oh yeah, we were all suffering together. So I think that brought us closer together as a family, <laughs> as a family unit. Surprise, this is your life, your new life that is completely different than your old one. And you don't know why. We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to explain, but it's okay because you really don't have the time or space to think about that here. Because this new life is very demanding. 
And before anything, take care of your brother, because he's pretty confused and scared, and he's only four. So don't cry. We got into a routine relatively quickly, you know, get up, make your bed, get dressed and ready for school, you go to school. It was like a, a, a day school, but it was super Christian. He'd gone to Catholic school before, but he had never gone to school in Ghana. It was called Soul Clinic International School. <laughs> so like we had uniforms, we had a little sailor bib. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Uh, we would go to assembly in the morning and kind of stand at attention and like march in and out to like Christian drumline music. And, you know, it's a predominantly Christian nation colonized by the British. So they spoke English. There was a kid in my class named Ben. Ben was also born and raised in Maryland. And the same thing that happened to me and my brother happened to him in first grade. <laughs> so when I got there, he was like, whoa, I'm from America too. Is Fresh Prince still on? <laughs> Did you get like extra attention from everybody because you were from America? Well, yeah, at first, yeah, I was distracting to a lot of kids, but then like they got used to me, but my nickname continued to be Yankee or Yank. I just keep imagining how disorienting this all must have been. He had been unsuspectingly going to school in Maryland not a month before, and he had felt like a child then, in a more traditional sense. He looked to his big sister to pick him up from school, and his dad to get him breakfast and give him rides in the morning, and he hadn't really worried about much of anything. But here, in a strange country, wearing a strange uniform, and getting called a strange new name, Yankee, there was nothing else for him to do but act like a man. They would right. call me that a lot, yeah, yeah, yeah. Until I developed a Ghanaian accent. So I started speaking English with a Ghanaian accent and, and kind of assimilated and started to sound like them not too long after I got there. You would think that this would be the most disorienting thing, like the delusion of living in Ghana had gotten inside of him somehow. But apparently that is just my inclination towards the dramatic, because he couldn't hear his own accent change. The only difference, from Eric's point of view, was that he started to blend in. Eventually, everyone just talked like me, and I, I talked like everyone. The longer they stayed, the more normal it all became. His brother would still cry for home sometimes, and he still wouldn't. He would ask Uncle Joe what the plan was. Was his mom coming back? Were they ever going to move back? Was he ever going to see Maryland again? I think it went from, she'll be back soon, to, you live here now, to... You'll go home next year. To wouldn't you want to go to high school here? <laughs> Isn't Ghana beautiful? Don't you want to just stay here and live with us, with your family? With your family. We are your family. Delusion! And I think they told us that as like a comforting lie to keep us satiated while we got acclimated to Ghana. And until we made friends and until we got used to everything and the routine so that we would not be so hung up on it so that we would kind of forget <laughs> the circumstances under which we got there. Satiated is such a good word for it. To satisfy a desire or appetite. Just a little delusion to satiate their appetite for home. I wanted to believe she was coming back soon, especially for my little brother, because he really bought into that. But part of the beauty of his life in Ghana and taking care of his little brother was that there wasn't a whole lot of time to fantasize at all. Eric had to keep moving, especially in school. The lessons moved fast and the stakes were very high, a lot higher than they had been in Maryland. Corporal punishment, alive and well. So if you like messed up in class, they'd bring you up in front of class and cane you with a wooden stick.
those teachers, you know, whooping you in school is definitely different. I'm like, oh, they don't do that in Maryland. <laughs> I kind of, I'm kind of missing the note home saying I was being disruptive <laughs> as opposed to this. Did you ever get the cane to your butt? A couple times, but then after like first two, three, like I'm like, oh, okay, now I've figured out how to avoid the cane to the butt. And so, yes, it worked in making me an obedient child, but you know, I, I there wasn't a lot of room to play outside of recess. You know, and I'm you know I've, I've read a couple of books in recent years where it's like that old way of rearing children. You know, spare the rod, spoil the child type deal, and like children are meant to be seen, not heard. It doesn't make for a good child. It makes for an obedient child. But a lot of times parents conflate being quiet or being obedient with being a good kid. It's like, no, a good kid is inquisitive and playful and like, you know, is a kid. And can you remember letting yourself cry about oh, that? Yeah. Every time, every time. Because it's not just the canning. It's like they bring you to the front of the class and the teacher's like, this student didn't bow, 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 and like cane you. And like, so it's, there's an embarrassment to it also. Right. So it's like, it's a double whammy. Like it's a very effective way of making kids, you know, fall in line, you know? So yeah, it was a trip. So definitely was missing Maryland <laughs> in those moments. If the delusion had been that he was in control, this sounds like an impossible moment to maintain that fantasy. And maybe also a part of the reason that control became so necessary. And I, I think also cause like my little brother in his preschool kindergarten class would get caned. And he'd tell me about it at recess or when we got home. I can only imagine that it was in those moments when it was most difficult to be the big brother. Because as a big brother myself, I feel like it would be those times when I would lean the hardest on my story. To say anything, to give my little brother hope or comfort or support or understanding. To give him relief. When everything in the physical world is completely out of control, if it were me, I would try to use my words. It's not so bad. It happened to me too. We're going to go home soon. Mom's coming back to get us and we're going to go back to Maryland. We're going to watch cartoons and eat McDonald's and and it's all going to be over soon. Delusion. It sounds almost harder to have your little brother there, but then maybe maybe he was helpful to you too. It's funny you bring that up. I think it depends on how you look at it, whether or not it was helpful to me that my little brother was there. Because some might say it was helpful to me because I could focus on comforting him and me and myself not being a quote unquote baby by whining and complaining. But if he wasn't there, I think I would have had more license to cry and, and whine and, and look to my older cousins to baby me, which, you know, depending on who you ask, that would have been me acknowledging my feelings <laughs> and not burying them to kind of placate or tend to my little brother. But his brother was there, and Eric was good to him. He put him first, and he kept a strong face, or more likely, I imagine, he smiled, and he took all of the messy, angry, out-of-control feelings, and he buried them. The way it affected me, it gave me delusions of kind of like, I'll describe it as like superhero syndrome. If I fail, the whole world will crumble. High stakes. Hear the delusion? If he failed, the whole world would crumble. I'm also a nerd, so I love superheroes. So it's kind of, it's easy to put those two together. Identifying with a superhero definitely helps me get through it. Cause it's like, this is a weird situation I've been thrown into. My little brother is kind of a damsel in distress. So I have to be Superman. Like that's, that's, that's where my head went. I was like, it can't be two of us crying here. Like, what are we gonna do? These are strangers to both of us. 
So since I'm not a stranger to my brother, I have to be the one that, that has him, you know? So eventually we became just like another couple set of kids in the house. The longer they stayed, the more they got to know Uncle Joe, the more they started to trust him and believe the stories he was telling. I started to kind of go with them on that kind of trajectory that they were presenting to me. So with every you know step, I was kind of like, yeah, I, I could see myself going to school here. Yeah, it's nice here. I don't miss snow. <laughs> this place is great. And it was like, in hindsight, there were definitely great benefits to living in Ghana as a little kid. Ghana exposed Eric to a lot of greatness that he has carried with him in his life. Ghana has always had a black president, which I saw that firsthand as a nine-year-old. When I did get back to Maryland in the States, it was already in my head that, oh, we can be president. We can run a country successfully and things won't just be engulfed in flames. Like I, I kind of had that before people here got Obama. There were black people all over the TV and like on billboards and in magazines. Like it was, it's a black, it's an African black country, like through and through. And getting to see my grandma a lot more often and you know, both of my grandmas in the villages that my parents were raised in and seeing exactly where I and my family come from was, was dope. It sounds like it made him proud. And the kind of strength that he was showing for his brother was making him realize the strength that he had inside of himself. The delusion was working. Having to step up and take care of my brother and, and kind of you know be his shoulder to cry on without a shoulder to cry on my own. And seeing the high standard that everyone is held to in Ghana, people over there are super smart and, and, and mature and, and, and chill and kind of like, there's like a wisdom, like a chill wisdom to folks in Ghana, where it's like, we like to have fun or whatever, but like, we don't, you know, people over there don't really, there are people that fuck around. But by and large, <laughs> you know, you don't really fuck around. Like, it's just different. The stakes are different, but then also like the motivations are different. The the mindset is different. It's like, we got something to do. Everyone has this role to play. We're all part of a communal kind of chain link or machine where it's like you know it really does feel like a giant village sorry about that sound he said it really felt like a giant village we all look like each other <laughs> like everyone in ghana looks like me for the most part i could go to anyone's house and get a meal and anyone could come over to our house and get a meal type type of feeling but like the whole country it almost felt like that's a sweeping generalization but that's, that's kind of the, the vibe of ghana it's super chill he was feeling strong and connected to his family he was feeling confident, and he had learned how to navigate school. He'd even found some swag hanging out with his older cousins. Growing up with older dude cousins definitely helped me grow up as like a more mature boy. They were rough with me. They play video games, like you know, they they talked to me about stuff. We'd all take baths together, like you know, they were into hip hop, so they like got me into stuff there that they would find online. And my sense of humor, they loved to joke around and laugh and you know do pranks and stuff. So that definitely helped with my sense of humor early on. Growing up, you get a little a little swag about you. They hadn't even been there that long, but time lasts forever when you're a kid. And somewhere along the way, Eric had grown up. We were there a year and a half. So I got there the middle of fourth grade finished out fourth grade, spent that whole summer there, and then did all of fifth grade there. And then was there till like the middle of the summer, maybe towards the end of the summer, and then definitely was back in time for sixth grade in Maryland. The adventure in Ghana ended almost as quickly and mysteriously as it began. After a year and a half, they were told it was time to go back. My Uncle Joe, at some point before that, was like, hey guys, guess what? Your parents have said it's time for you guys to come back home to Maryland. 
and we're like, do we have to? <laughs> like, because at that point, we're, yeah, we're Ganyans at that point. Why wow, you really felt that? You didn't want to go back then? Yeah. On the last day, they cried. They didn't want to leave their family, didn't want to leave the life that they had found. At some point, they had gotten attached to the delusion that they would stay and be Ganyans, that they would go to high school there and college in the UK. They'd gotten used to it. They didn't want to leave. We had our friends we had made in the neighborhood and the school and church. I was going to miss my bed. I, was, I, was gonna, I wasn't going to miss the mosquitoes. Not the mosquitoes, but he was going to miss everything else. And it makes me think about transitions in life like this, when we're moving to a new place, and we wonder if we're going to get to be the same person that we've been in the new environment. Maybe he didn't want to say goodbye to the version of himself that he had found in Ghana. The routine, the weather, the air, like my family members at Uncle Joe's house, like they became, they are, but they like became family that I lived with. And like, you know, every day I would see these people, they'd help me with my homework and like, you know, We'd watch soap operas together after school. Like, that was the family. It was a different feeling with the family in Ghana. And at home in Maryland, it was just me, my sister, my brother. My parents weren't really touchy-feely. Like, everyone kind of did their own thing. But in Ghana, the family moved as a unit. We all crowded around the TV, my cousins, to to watch TV and, like, go here, go there. We would move as a unit. So I was going to miss the unit in Ghana. In some ways, arriving back in Maryland may have been just as jarring as when he had arrived in Ghana. He wasn't the husky fourth grader who ate McDonald's for breakfast in the car anymore. He didn't just read about superheroes in comic books. Ghana had changed him. I I came back, you know, skinny as a rail, so I I definitely looked different. I had the accent, so I sounded like a character in Black Panther (laughs) for the first couple months that I was back. And yeah, I was was a little sharper, uh, you know, a little more athletic, like taller. So sixth grade starts, I go to that public school that my mom yanked me out of in fourth grade. And there were kids there from that fourth grade class because, you know, whatever. So some of them recognized me. They were like, weren't you here in fourth grade? You look familiar. And, you know, I had my accent. I was like, yes, that was me. I was your classmate. Then my mother took me from school and sent me to Ghana. (laughs) Wow. So, yeah, so it, it was a trip. But the physical transformation was really just the beginning the really significant transformation had happened inside. I don't know if just the British education system is a little more advanced than the American one, but like when I got back to school, I was like a grade level ahead in pretty much everything. Like I knew what exponents were in sixth grade and like just advanced stuff. Like, so when the teacher was starting to explain it, I was like, oh yeah, I already know that we did that in fourth grade in Ghana. I almost skipped a grade. I'm already young for my, my grade. I graduated high school at 17. He stayed on course. He was ahead of the game actually. His mentality had matured beyond that of most of his classmates, because while they had all stayed in Maryland and moved from fourth grade to fifth to sixth grade, Eric had gone away to a different continent, all on his own. And he had found himself living real life. I think one not so good silver lining of seeing all that, though, uh, as a kid in Ghana was I felt like there's no excuse to not be able to get your stuff done. Delusion. There's no excuse to not get things accomplished. Because superheroes never fail. And when they do, the whole world crumbles. Like, it is beautiful that Ghana's run by black people. So it's like, there is no excuse then for me to fail at anything. Kind of, kind of sort of is, is what it was instilled in me. And like, you know, the corporal punishment in class. Like, you make a mistake, you get caned. Like, there, there is no excuse for falling short. Otherwise, you do deserve to get punished or you do deserve to fail or whatever. So it, it, it kind of getting caned when you talk out of turn in class or don't underline something with a ruler in class 
kind of makes it like I better not fuck up. <laughs> like I got to be perfect, otherwise a really bad thing will happen. So that's kind of what in, that instills in in you as a, as a person when you grow up that way. So I think that's what I took with me into my adulthood. Think about the biggest ideas that you had about yourself when you were 11 years old. We take them with us to a certain extent into adulthood. So let's slash forward with Eric to the future. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm an adult. I'm in L.A. and I'm in this relationship with this woman. She's great. She's fantastic. She's you know my first girlfriend since my very first girlfriend. Eric came out to L.A. to be a writer and comedian, which is where we originally met each other. This might be our longest conversation, though, <laughs> to be honest. All right, that's fair. But I'm glad we're talking now. <laughs> Eric met his girlfriend in the comedy scene, and they were super supportive of one another. They each hosted stand-up comedy shows and promoted each other on social media, and they were really in love. Except, it wasn't all perfect. They'd broken up a couple times, on and off. Eric was the one driving that. They were together now, and he was keeping himself in line with a pretty insistent story. This is my girlfriend. I've committed to this relationship. I asked her out, and I've already broken up with her a couple times. I gotta make this relationship work. He was also working a part-time gig as a telemarketer selling theater tickets. It was a tough sales job. I'm not good at sales on the phone. I'm making the littlest amount of money, and I have so many bills, and I'm stressed. Because also, I had been staffed, and I, I, like, I achieved the dream. He had already worked as a staff writer on a Disney show, but when the gig ended, he was back out to hustling. I've been there, and I can attest the hustle definitely hurts more once you've already tasted the dream. The call center he was working at was in a basement. I'm a writer-comedian down there. My buddy who got me the gig was a writer-comedian. There's poets and musicians and actor-actors, like theater actors, like all with the headset on <laughs> selling ticket packages to watch other people live the dream that we're working towards actively. Yeah. And I was like, this is where dreams come to die in this basement with this headset on. I can't, I was like, I can't, but I have to, like, this is what it is. I need this gig. I'm at the same time trying to make two things work that are not working, but I'm like, I got to make it work. Superhero syndrome. I was stressed and I was frustrated, but I was like, you're not working hard enough, Eric. If you just work hard enough, you can succeed at this job. You're the reason why you're not succeeding, Eric, is what I would tell myself. So that coupled with like our relationship kind of struggles was like, this is not a good way to be. He was about to turn 30, which I think is a very delusional time for most of us because we get that number in our heads. We make it feel important. We decide that it's a milestone. And for Eric, it sounds like this milestone felt very poorly timed. How could he be making this transition into adulthood delusion? when he was so unfulfilled by so many of the main components in his life. He called his cousin to talk it out, and she had some good advice. She also validated his delusion that this was, in fact, a milestone. She told him, 30 is when you start to become an adult, so you don't want to bring bullshit into your adulthood. Like, you want to start your adulthood on a good foot. And I don't know why that resonated me with me so much. Well, I kind of do now because I was drowning. <laughs> but it really resonated with me uh, when she said that. I like the language. It resonates with me too. You don't want to take that bullshit into your adulthood. Of course, keeping in mind that adulthood is a pretty flexible idea. Delusion. As far as I can tell, Eric was pushed to act like an adult when he was nine years old. It's not weakness to walk away from things that aren't working. That was concise. Definitely going to hang on to that one. 
Eric's friends didn't like his girlfriend either, not because she had ever done anything to them, but because Eric would tell them about the bad parts of the relationship when things weren't working. And then when they would make up, the friends wouldn't forget. Does that sound familiar? She and Eric were drinking wine on a restaurant patio one night, and she couldn't stop complaining about her roommates. She complained about them a lot, actually. And she had told me stories like this before. And I'm like, man, there is always something going on at this house. Like, yo, you are always going through some roommate shit. Which I can only imagine is code for enough of the roommate drama. Let's wrap it up and talk about something else, right? And she, and she snapped and was like, so then move in with me. Eric wasn't ready for that. He was happy with his roommate. But more than that, the truth was he was not ready to move in with her. Just not how he was feeling. He tried to be gentle about it, but he told her no, and she cried. They were just in different places. Eric felt awful. He looked around the patio self-consciously, imagining what the other patrons must have been thinking about him. Everything was falling apart. He felt like he needed to hold on, to keep it together, to take control. Meanwhile, back at the telemarketing job. There was a coworker there who was an older gentleman who loved, the, loved what we were selling, loved going to shows and whatnot. And he was getting sick down there and he like took a leave of absence. And then like one day our manager came down and was like, hey, like, old boy died, like he passed away. And, you know, he worked basically up until the week before he died, like down in that basement with a headset selling, selling the things. This was a big wake up call for Eric. This guy that he had known had spent the last chapter of his life in this basement telemarketing. And with that, a very distinct voice made itself heard in Eric's head. It said, This is not what I'm here to do. This is not what I'm here to do. So even if I don't have anything specific set in stone lined up for if I leave here, I have to get the fuck up out of here. So like both those things happen around the same time, like a couple months before my 30th birthday. With the delusion of adulthood looming on the horizon, he could feel the pressure building to make a move. And I got over the, the kind of idea that I have to make these things work. It's not weakness to walk away from things that aren't working. But he felt the pressure to play his part, to make the money he needed, to support his girlfriend. There were definitely times where I was like her rock, her shoulder to cry on. And I felt like I couldn't leave her high and dry. She never twisted my arm or was like, what am I going to do without you? Like, she never did that. But I kind of did that to myself. Like, Eric, you can't in this relationship. What is she going to do without you? As if she wasn't a fully formed adult <laughs> before me and wouldn't be after me. Well, you know, that, that, that narcissism, egotism. I love that he calls that out because it presents itself as generosity or compassion. But he's right. There's a certain egotism that lives behind it. The Eric, don't fail. Eric, don't mess up. Eric, don't leave your little brother by himself in Ghana. Yeah. This, yeah. This person needs me. When, in, in fact, I needed help. And, you know, I, it wasn't necessarily my job to always be there for everybody. So he wrote two letters one to his girlfriend and one to his job, telling them in the most concise, compassionate ways that he appreciated them, but it wasn't working. He let each of the letters live on his phone for about a week before he delivered them. He read the one to his girlfriend one night sitting in the car after dinner. She didn't cry this time. She didn't need a boyfriend that didn't want to be with her, and she had no delusions about her ability to take care of herself. He printed the letter of resignation for work at Kinko's and delivered it by hand to his boss. I went into my manager's office at the sales place. I was like, hey, I've got some bad news. And he's like, what, you, you got to miss some shifts too? 
you got an audition too? I'm like, no, uh, I'm quitting. <laughs> I had a presentation. He sees it and he's like, oh man, well, he was about to lie to me and say I was a good salesman, but he did it. <laughs> he was like, you're a good, you're a good presence to have here in the office and we're really yeah. gonna miss you. <laughs> I was like, thanks, man. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> thanks for not lying to me. <laughs> Eric left the basement and stepped out into the bright sunlight of Hollywood Boulevard. It was hot and it smelled like garbage but he wasn't gonna carry any of that with him into his future. It felt like a weight had been lifted, even though I was anxious about what am I gonna do for work now? But yeah, I think it all, it all kind of worked out. I guess the lesson for me has been like, it's okay to fail. It's okay to fall short. We're imperfect humans, like we're gonna mess up, but it's like, as long as you know you're doing your best and you're not hurting people, like it's okay to want better for yourself and to be better, but like to be a perfectionist is purely an ego-driven thing. The only accolades for being a perfectionist are you being able to say, I'm a perfectionist, I do everything perfect. That's not possible and it's not healthy and it's okay to not rise to the occasion all the time. Eric remains tight with his family, particularly his little brother, who doesn't remember a lot of what happened in Ghana. He talks to his big sister about it sometimes. She spent some time there as well when she was 18. She's on uh, team Eric, you gotta let it go. Because <laughs> sometimes I do bring it up and I'm like, mom really messed me up and she <laughs> left me in Ghana. He's like, bro, you're, you're, you're a grown man, it's fine. Like, <laughs> That's probably true too. I think both things are probably true, right? It's probably good for you to talk about it. Oh and, yeah. And good for you to let it go. I make jokes about it, but like, well, clearly it affects certain parts of my life, but I'm not like holding on resentment. Like I still talk to my mom, it's all good. And I've asked, I was like, yo, why did you like yank us out of school and send us to Ghana and tell us we were going on vacation when well, you knew that's not what it was? And she's like, I did what was best for you. And that's what she left it as. Eric, I think we both know that you're not going to fully let go of it until you write a script about it. Um, Which I have. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that's definitely your pilot. Like, <laughs> it is sure. one of many like, pilots. <laughs> I would definitely watch that show. It sounds like a very rich premise. Yeah, it yeah. is definitely one of the pilots in the stack of pilots. I want to thank Eric for his story today. I really appreciate him going with the flow and telling us something so personal. His story about going to Ghana in fifth grade is really the essence of what the show is about, and such a simple reminder that none of us are in control, which is why it's so important to surrender. Also, very good reminder that perfectionism is a delusion, and more than that, it's ego. It's unhealthy. We are imperfect humans, and the exciting stuff starts happening when we can accept that. Adulthood is a delusion. It can be a useful one if it reminds you not to carry garbage with you into your future, because it's not weakness to walk away from things that aren't working. It's strength. Eric's words. Thank you for being here with me today, Earth Monster. If you have love for the show and you want to support us, you can write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That's the Purple Podcast app on your smartphone. Or send us your love on Venmo at Your Necessary Delusion. If you have a delusion of your own and you want to share it, or maybe you have feedback on an episode, please call our voicemail at 323-540-4540 or email us at yournecessarydelusion at gmail.com. We will be back next week with more epic everyday stories of success and redemption. Until next time.
So yeah, no, therapy's been great. And to kind of speak to my constant holding up of a shield, I didn't even get to the you know, left behind in Ghana story to like session number four or five. I kind of said it in passing at the end of one of our sessions. I was like, yeah. And then, you know, when I was little, my mom left me in Ghana. Anyway, I think that's the hour. Uh, you know, I'll see you next time. At this. She's like, wait, hold on. <laughs> Ta-ta delusion.